Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us for this year's uh, annual Rhoda Goldman Lecture in Health Policy. The Goldman School is honored uh, to hold this lecture each year in recognition of the late Rhoda Goldman's contribution to healthcare. You may know that the public policy school here on campus is the Richard and Rhoda Goldman School of Public Policy, uh, which is a wonderful name to have a, a, a couple of uh, their accomplishment and renown uh, that, we are named, that we named our school after. And let me just tell you a little bit about Rhoda Goldman. In 1967, Rhoda Goldman co-founded the American Cancer Society's San Francisco Reach to Recovery Program, uh, using her own experience as a breast cancer survivor to counsel other women uh, after their surgery for breast cancer. That program continues to this very day. In 1975, Rhoda Goldman followed in the footsteps of her mother, Elise Stern Haas, and became president of the board of directors of Mount Zion Hospital and Medical Center. This evening, I'd like to acknowledge her son, Douglas Goldman, who among, Dr. Douglas Goldman, who among his many distinctions is a founding member of the Goldman School of Public Policy's Board of Advisors. And I'm not sure if Doug is here. He may not have made it yet, but I don't. He's on the bridge, I am told. Okay. Um, it is my pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker and UC Berkeley alumnus. That's really important and wonderful. Dr. Alfredo Hinones Hinojosa. Uh, I find it particularly fitting, and I believe you all will also when you hear his story, that Governor Grant Brown has just signed into law the DREAM Act, which as many of you probably know, <laughs> makes it possible for students who do not have legal residence to receive financial aid. And you'll know more about why that's a crucial fact as you hear uh, Dr. Q's story. Let me just tell you a little bit about how this whole event happened. Uh, Dr. Q just finished a book. It's called Becoming Dr. Q, and there it is, and you probably can't see it in this little circular, but there it is. I think there's a bunch of these at the back uh, of the lecture hall, and if you pick one up, it tells you how to buy the book online and to get a substantial discount. So if you'd like to have the book, and you will after you hear Dr. Q speak tonight, uh, this is a chance to get it at a reduced price. And I want to thank Naomi Schneider of UC Press, who uh, put us in contact with Dr. Q. Naomi, where are you? Thank you so much. And Steve Silverstein of our advisory board, who actually was the go-between. It went from, from Naomi to Steve to us, and then we got going and made this happen, and we're so thrilled that we did. Let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Q. Even here in Berkeley, which is a citadel of advanced education, Dr. Q breaks the barriers. He's extraordinary in so many ways. He became a neurosurgeon, four years of college, four years of medical school, followed by six years as a resident in a program that usually includes science and clinical research. So he's a neurosurgeon. He attended Harvard Medical School, completed his residency at UCSF across the Bay, and today is an acclaimed, really acclaimed neurosurgeon and neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University, uh, the first really graduate school of medicine, I think, in the United States, and still the most acclaimed school, perhaps, in the world. 
Few brain surgeons have the time or energy to maintain a research lab. So he operates. He does standard operations, but at the same time he has a research lab. No, not just one research lab, two research labs. He's got one which focuses on neural stem cells, which Dr. Q thinks may offer insight into brain cancer and neurodegenerative disease. And the other lab is developing a patient database to better understand why some patients develop serious complications after surgery. His awards are too numerous to mention, uh, although one we especially like, and tells you something about his history, is that in 1990 he was the outstanding tutor at San, San Joaquin Delta College. So he went to a community college on his way to UC Berkeley and won an award as an outstanding tutor, which is quite lovely and wonderful. Those lucky students didn't know that their tutor was going to go on to be uh, Washington, D.C.'s Hispanic Scholarship uh, Hall of Fame member, one of Popular Science's Brilliant Ten, to receive the American Association of Neurological Surgeons Young Clinician Investigator Award, and to inspire and educate as a speaker at commencements, commencements and at world-class scientific meetings by the dozens. Uh, his vita runs to something like 65 pages. Uh, we made the mistake of, oh, we'll print out his CV. Oh, my gosh. It's extraordinary, all that he's done. After Dr. Q's presentation, I will pose questions from the cards. I don't know if we've handed them out yet, but there will be cards uh, handed out. Okay, they've been handed out already. You were given as you came in, and the staff will collect them, give them to me, and then I'll ask the questions. So please write legibly and uh, get your question in, in early so I can see what they are. At this point, with really great thrill and enthusiasm, because, again, Dr. Q is a UC Berkeley alumnus who has really, really, really done well, um, it is a thrill and a privilege to turn the evening over to Dr. Kunonis Hinojosa. Great. I am, um, let me see if I can figure out how to turn this thing on. And it should, yes, I figured it out, Dana. So Dana was a little bit skeptical right there in the back. So I'd like to thank every single one of you guys for coming in tonight. I am sure all of you guys have more important things to do than listening to a brain surgeon say a few things here and there. And um, I am absolutely humble to see and to walk through the campus that began an incredible period in my life between 1991 and 1994. And to be here, this building didn't exist back then, actually. And uh, not to walk here and be in front of you guys and, and, and to have to say a few words, I just, it really touches me in ways that words cannot properly express. And for that, I thank you all. I thank Naomi, my editor from UC Press, for believing and uh, my story and for allowing us to put it on paper and for you guys to come in to listen to what I have to say. I deal with cancer, alrighty? And I would bet that almost everybody here in this room has been touched by cancer. One way or another, family member, friend, they know someone. Cancer in general affects hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. I personally deal with brain cancer, which 
primary brain cancer, not the cancer that comes from the body up to the brain, affects about 40,000 people every year. And about 3,000 new patients are diagnosed every year, and I do about 300 of those in surgery. All right, so I, want, I have one of the busiest primary brain tumor surgery practices in the United States. I am absolutely humble, and my patients have been my inspiration. You know, when I was a little kid, I had a dream that I wanted to be an astronaut. And I used to go to the roof of my house, and I used to just look up at the stars and wonder, and I used to see the stars moving from time to time, lights moving out there. How little did I know the one day I was going to be navigating and holding the universe in my hands. That is our brain. We spend so much going out there in the world and the universe and trying to learn more, and we know so little about this incredible organ, which is the human brain. And I get to hold it, and I get to dream. And my dreams have obviously in many ways come true. But this is only the beginning, obviously. In my laboratory, as you see, actually right there, we have an incredible um, group of students who are doing the hard work. But they are also motivated by our patients. Every couple of months, one of our patients or their family members comes in, and they actually share their story with our students. And I talk about all these kind of things, obviously, in this recent book that we published. And i got to tell you, they, my patients, are the ones that kept me going for the past few years because people ask, don't you get tired? I do get tired. Every morning, I tell you, when I wake up, you know, I get up around 4.15 in the morning. When I don't get up, I wake up at 4.15 in the morning, the alarm goes off, and I turn it off. And I stay in bed for another 10 minutes. Because I am human, just like everybody else. I am tired in the morning. I'm not going to lie to you. And I just stay in bed, and I wish I could stay in bed for another few hours and rest. But then I think about my patients, I think about Don, you know, I think about John Petrovic, which is another one of my patients that was just featured in another national TV show, actually, that are fighting and battling brain cancer. For me, people have asked me, why do you love the brain so much? I'm going to read something from my book, actually. I think it's in page 262, and I'm going to go right here. All righty? Here we go. On this point, in fact, while grabbing a quick nap in my office one afternoon just before a radio interview, I dreamed that I was already on air and commenting on my, on my philosophy when the interviewer asked, why do you love the brain so much? In my sleep, I knew the answer immediately. No matter how different we are from one another, black, white, yellow, Jewish, Christian, rich, poor, educated or not, our brains are all the same. The same beautiful, noble, great color, the same shape and size. I love the small and large red rivers that run through everyone's brains like roads that show us the way to unravel the universe. I love how every single person's brain can dance just as magnificently as the next person's. I can tell the difference between brains of patients of different races, religions, or classes because they have all these features in common. I remember as a medical student the first time that I saw the brain, and I walked into the operating room and I saw this beautiful organ just dancing with the heart, with such an incredible rhythm. 
And I was captivated, as you can imagine. And I get to do. And I, with my patience, we are all together becoming part of history. You know, I can't compete with your faculty. I used to Berkeley in genetics and, and some of the incredible fields that you guys have. But where people, even at my own institution, have a difficult time competing with me is getting access to the human brain. And I get to do it every single day. And somehow, we convince the federal government through the NIH, through an R1 grant, to support our work. And I am, I've been blessed that I'm one of the few brain surgeons in the United States, probably less than a dozen, that has federal funding, actually, to do this kind of work. People have asked me, why is it, why, why do you do it, how do you do it? I really don't have an explanation. One of the reasons why I wrote um, the book is because I wanted to understand myself also. It was an opportunity to go back and look at the highlights of the things that have made me who I am and who are allowing me to one day become Dr. Q. I'm not there yet. Hence the title. I am progressing. It's a work in progress. And I think that even though most of us like to feel that we are in solid ground, we realize there is no such thing as solid ground. Life is evolving constantly. And my patients, obviously, presently, are the ones that are keeping me going and try to be motivated. The truth is that I also had my own brushes with death. It was April 14, 1989 when I had an event that changed my life forever. And I recount that in the actual book. I was at the bottom of a liquefied petroleum gas tank, gasping for air, fighting for my life. And I left it all behind. I was able to fight my way all the way to the top, hold the hand of one of my co-workers. And Meme helped me to tell this story in ways that my friends tell me that it's so powerful and so emotional because my whole life rushed through in front of my eyes. And at the end, I had faith that I had given it all I had and I let go. And I landed back at the bottom of this tank right when my father was about to hold my hand. And you can imagine, he was my age today, what I am, 43. And he saw his 19, 20-year-old son at the bottom of this tank die. They were able to save my life. I mean, these people, you know, my co-workers were true heroes. And by the time I made it out, I knew that my father said that I was going to be okay, even though I was in a stretcher, completely immobilized and, and vomiting, and, and the doctors telling me to relax. I said, I can't relax. I feel nausea, vomiting, my neck hurts, so I had landed actually in my head and all this kind of stuff. And then after a few hours, after they did all kinds of CT scan and MRIs, I turned to my father and I said, Dad, I noticed that there were some young and attractive nurses. And I said, and I said Dad, how does my hair look? <laughs> so he knew I was going to be fine right around that time. You know. But obviously, you know, I have to find in my own life, you know, and I write a chapter about finding the still in my soul. You know, and I have a story, actually, that I'd like to share with you with a patient. And this one is in page 286. If it's okay with you, I'm going to go ahead and read out of this in page 286. I will never forget walking into an exam room with devastating news from my patient Sharon, a young mother in her early 20s who had traveled to Baltimore from out of state with her husband, a soldier just returned from an overseas tour of duty. When the couple arrive at the clinic, we first talk about their two children, a toddler and a baby, and the joys and challenges of parenting. Sharon was bright-eyed, thoughtful, and stoic when I described the surgery and the follow-up treatment for what I suspected was a high-grade malignant tumor. 
this one was on the brain stem, the parts that control breathing, you know, heart rates and things like that. We were able to reach her primary care uh, physician back home, put him on the speaker phone and coordinate a plan of action for when she returned. Everything went perfectly in the operating room. As you can imagine, when I'm putting a needle all the way down to the brain stem, my heart is almost on the floor. But from a technical standpoint, everything went well. But when I removed the tumor and sent it for an intraoperative test, it looked as dangerous as I had anticipated. A senior pathologist came to the operating room to confirm the high-grade tumor. The final biopsy in turn revealed it to be one of the faster-growing high-grade glioblastoma multiforme, the same tumor that took the life of Senator Kennedy, but this one was in the brain stem. In my post-op meeting with Sharon and her husband, I first commented on her courage. And by the way, I said, as you sit here today, you look great. What's your secret? She looked at me with a nervous smile and said, brain surgery. <laughs> I then had to tell them that my worst fears had been confirmed about the nature of the tumor and describe the best and worst case scenarios of life expectancy. Of course, we had treatment options and would be vigilant in applying them. Sometimes in such meetings with patients, I explain that numbers mean little and that it is not helpful to put a finite limit on time left. But Sharon and her husband insisted on knowing the general expectations so they could actually plan. I told them that we would try to buy more time and stave off an immediate progression. Another year would be a blessing, but we would try for two more years. At that moment, they realized with sudden certainty that she was really going to die. Sharon then did something that I will remember for the rest of my life. She turned to her husband, put her hand on his knee, and as both of them gave in to tears, she looked into his eyes, saying softly but powerfully, I love you. With those three words, she said everything. That she knew he would be left with two little children to raise without their mother. That he will live the rest of his life without his soulmate and partner. She was not thinking of herself at that moment, only of her loved ones. And these are the kind of moments that I share with my patients. Very, very powerful moments. I study brain cancer because I believe, and I am biased because I'm a brain surgeon and a brain scientist, I believe that the brain is the most beautiful organ that we have. It's what makes us who we are. It makes us love each other, and it makes us hate each other, unfortunately. It makes us do Good things. And I have benefited from wonderful people, great people, but it also allows us to do bad things to each other. And I believe that if one day we have hope that we can cure brain cancer, for me it's a symbol that we have hope of curing cancers that affect our society. Racism, discrimination, bifurcation of classes, inequalities in healthcare. And those are the things that motivate me to keep going. And I look at the situation, and I'm not a politician. I'm not an econ an, uh, someone who's an expert in economics. I'm sure you guys have wonderful faculty who do this every day. But I do pay attention to people who are very bright. And I realize that we're going through a difficult time in our country. And we've done it over and over. Every time things get really difficult, 
we turn around and we say, who can we blame? Who is at fault for whatever problems we have, for the high unemployment rate, for the low levels of education, for being one of the wealthiest, or actually being the wealthiest nation in the world, and having developing countries with a better elementary education system that we do. And I tell my students in the laboratory, learn from our patients, learn from John, learn from Don, when they face the most difficult and the most challenging times in their life, all they do is just keep moving forward. And nothing sometimes hits harder than life, as you can imagine. And life will get you down on your knees. I tell my own children that. And it's not sometimes about how hard one can hit. And I learned that from the last Rocky movie. <laughs> it's not about how hard you can hit, but about getting hit and keep moving forward. And I can say that with a certain level of authority because I also did three amateur fights which I talk about this. It was my competitive nature. Sometimes we do have to find the steel in our soul and we have to realize that not everything is as easy as one would like. We think about the American dream. We think about the things that build this as the most wonderful country in the world. I still believe that the American dream is still present. But the American dream is not about Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. The American dream is about finding your passion, that passion that will drive you to work 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And it doesn't feel like a work, like a job. And that's exactly where I have been blessed. And it all began here at UC Berkeley. The day that I decided that I was going to go and work in a laboratory. At the time, a professor by the name of Joe Martinez, a great mentor, who, by the way, crossed the line between being a mentor and a tormentor, and sometimes you've got to do that with your students. <laughs> and I do that all the time. But he never let me get away with anything. When I came into his laboratory, he said, you are not here to wash dishes. You are here to explore the universe of the brain. This is your $200,000 rig where you're going to do electrophysiology and you're going to find the monosynaptic connection between the lateral and rhinal cortex and the nucleus accumbens. I didn't even have an idea on how to spell any of those two words. <laughs> but he said, you're not here to work for others. You're here to work for yourself and for the future of mankind. And that all began right here. And I began to explore the brain. How little did I know that one day I was going to be in the operating room, stumble upon an awake craniotomy, and do some of the most sophisticated brain surgery, and give my patients hope, which is what I do every day. I don't know if I can cure brain cancer, to be honest with you. I hope we have an effect in our patients. This is what I do, what I'm doing. I'm doing the race. We actually pledge with my patients to fundraise about $250,000 for a microscope that we need in the lab. And as of this morning, we're almost $180,000. These are people, people who are blue-collar people who are willing to invest in someone like me. So we, one day we can find a cure for brain cancer. So my, my message is actually simple. I was told when I was a little kid not to follow someone else's path but instead to be a trailblazer, make my own path and allow other people to have a much easier time and fight their own battles, which undoubtedly will be different than mine. My grandfather told me when I was a little kid, 
that a fool with a good tool is still a fool. It's not the education that we get. It's what we do with that education. And I am put in a situation nowadays where people think that I have some sort of authority. You know, two weeks ago I was asked by my dean to go with Michael Bloomberg to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to talk about immigration. And I said, I know nothing about immigration. I talked to my chairman. I said, and I don't. And my chairman said, look, when the dean asks you to, do, to jump, you just say, how high? And I went and I met Michael Bloomberg said, you don't have to do anything. You just got to tell your story. And the whole story and his point was exactly some of the economic issues that we have in our country, obviously. So I have been put in a situation where people realize that all I want to do is make a difference in our patients. And I know there are people in the United States who have hate, who have bad feelings in their heart for people like me. And there are people, if you go to LA Times about a week ago, I did an interview. If you look at the blog, they said he took the spot of someone else. And Michael Bloomberg said, Dr. Quinones, when he came in 1987, there were not a lot of Americans lining up to work in the fields. In 1989, there were not a lot of Americans lining up to work as welders. And guess where are the two jobs that have the highest demand presently in the United States, despite of the fact that our unemployment is super high? Welders and farm laborers. So Michael Bloomer looks to my right and says, so Dr. Quinones has job security, brain surgery doesn't work. I did say, I had dinner with one of my dear colleagues last night, Michael Lawton, who's in the book, who I call him a Jedi Master. Because you, if you read the book, he's unbelievable. And he, I told him as I was driving into this beautiful restaurant, and I, you know, I'm blessed nowadays. I was, you know, I am uh, staying at the beautiful hotel, that, the places when I was a student, I used to look and I said, when am I going to be able to do this? You know, and I, I told him, one day, if I am blessed with a big house, I'm going to have a welding shop. Alrighty, so that's, I still, a lot of the skills that I learned as a welder, because we had to, I was doing heavy duty welding, they're the similar skills that I use now as a brain surgeon. So I tell our youth, sometimes you don't know which way you're going. All you have to know is that sometimes when you face dark times, and when everything gets really dark, just close your eyes and have faith that your instincts will guide you. And there will be a lot of stars. There will be a lot of good people around you. And I have been blessed by those people in the United States who have helped me and they take me through this journey. Determination, I will need. Resilience, I will find. Excitement will give me the fuel. Ability will come with training. Mentorship, I have tried to give others. The world, Winston Churchill said, is a dangerous place. Not because of, actually Albert Einstein said that, Stand corrected. I remember. My brain works sometimes. The world is a dangerous place, not because of people who do evil, but because of those who look and do absolutely nothing. Here in San Francisco, I, was, I once saved the life of a cop. And the story is in the book. It's an incredible story. And I got two things out of that experience, that they are actually in my office at home. One of them was the plaque with a quote from Vince Lombardi. For all those football aficionados, go Bears. And the plaque says, the quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence, regardless of their chosen 
field of endeavor. Let me repeat that. The quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence, regardless of their chosen field of endeavor. Four things for our youngsters who are going to be the people who are going to be taking care of me. Alrighty, 34 years from now, you have to realize that we have a crisis in our country. 50, by the year 2050, one out of four people in the United States will be of Hispanic origin. If we don't change the course of our country, we, our children, are going to be the ones outsourcing for other countries. So I ask you, there are four A's. My message is simple. I think very simply. Availability, affability, ability, and accountability. Let me repeat that. Availability, affability, ability, and accountability. That's it. It's really not that difficult to feel, to, to, to live the American dream. It's just hard work. I thank you. I'll be delighted. I'm a minute over, but I try to stay on time, and we can do the Q&A. Thank you for being here. So there's uh, cards that you can fill out and get some questions up here. And since I don't have any yet, I'm going to start with a question that just intrigued me. So you were at San Joaquin Community College. And why Berkeley? <laughs> I, I talk about that in my book, actually. Um, Berkeley was the epicenter of an incredible movement. And as I was growing up, and I didn't really know much about education in the United States, but I do remember my cousin Armando, who is in the book, who used to talk about this mystical place called Berkeley. And I grew up in a small little town in the middle of Mexico, all right, a very poor background, and I knew about Berkeley already. So when I was here, I actually accepted the spot in Berkeley, really have never visited the campus, you know, because I really didn't have much resources. So I knew the place. I knew that this was one of the best universities in the world, and I was committed to get the best possible education that I could get. And did we do that for you, I hope? I, th I hope so. I think so. Good. I like to think well, so. Well, you cared about this, but did we help? I yes. hope we helped. No, it was, so uh, you were a psychology major. I was a psychology major. And tell us a little more about this lab. It sounds quite extraordinary. Was this something that this mentor did with everybody? That well, you know, thing? it's quite interesting. He didn't do it with everybody because I got to tell you that around the time there were some other students. So he tailored his advice for every student differently. And he must have seen Joe, who is now has become a dear friend of mine and we teach a course together in Woods Hall. Since then he moved on to Texas, UT San Antonio. We teach a course in Woods Hole and stem cells, actually, every summer. And we become dear friends. So he saw something, actually, in me that was slightly different than what he'd seen before. And he wanted to test whether or not his hypothesis was true. And his hypothesis was that I was going to be able to have an independent project by myself. And that was based on two interactions that we had. He had given me an assignment one day to go in and research everything possible in Mr. Hebb, H, Dr. Hebb, H-E-B-B. And he gave me a week, and I spent all night in the library. Hypomania is something that fortunately and unfortunately runs in me and my children too, and I spent all night, 
and I did a whole paper on this and I put it on his desk. And that was the beginning. He said, you know, this kid really is like a horse on Lasix. I think that we need to tame him a little bit and see what we can do with him. <laughs> okay, so, so I presume this mentor was somebody you looked up to. Were there other people at Cal or even Absolutely. in, a, in I mean, general who you looked up to? Well, you know, I tell you, mentorship starts at home with mm -hmm. my parents, you know, and I talk about that in the book. And it starts also with, I, I, I broke the book in three different periods, obviously. Uh, my childhood, the mentorship that I got from my parents, my grandparents, and then my early years here in the United States. And mentorship doesn't have to come from people that look like you. If you look at the people that I had, I was mentored here at UC Berkeley, were my classmates, my professors, certainly Joe, Hugo, some people that were actually here around that time, and my classmates, who provided me with the strength to keep moving every day. And some of the students asked me today, why do you do those days that were dark? that you really, you know, you didn't know which way you were going. And there were many days like that, to be honest with you. And I remember I used to go for a run here, and I used to just stop whatever I was doing when I was lost and just go in, sit, you know, relax, and try not to do anything. And sometimes I would go and watch a matinee, and I was absorbing the American culture. And that's how I got through those dark days, to be honest with you. I don't know if that's a way that other people do it, but that's how I did it. Mm -hmm. you know, but then the third period of my life was you know, mentorship through medical school and residency. And now the mentorship that I'm getting, those are professors and you know, faculty, and now the mentorship I get, obviously, from my children and my patients. So as an undocumented person in the United States, how did that feel? How did that affect you day by day? How did you get through it? What kinds of experiences did you experience? And did you see other people who were, uh, let's say, tormented by it because it was such a complicated position to be in? You know, uh, I was in a, a, a lecture, you know, with Beatrice, Professor Mons today, Beatrice Mons, and, uh, and I had a lunch with your students, a private lunch with about 10 students. And one of the students asked me a very powerful question that I'd like to share with you and said, what are the two moments in your life, the moment that you felt the most empowered and the moment where you felt the most down, experiences that you had during your education? And fortunately and unfortunately, they both happened here at Berkeley. And I tell you, and we still have a responsibility, all right? And that is to illustrate that sometimes the things that come out of our mouth can actually be hurtful. The first, the most empowering moment was when I met Joe, and he said, you're, not, you're here to explore the universe. Mm -hmm. He empowered me to be an astronaut in the brain. The worst moment also came when I was taking physical anthropology. I got a C- minus in my first exam. I didn't know what was going on. I go to my TA and I realized that the exam was put together sometimes by the TAs based on a curriculum and there were notes that were being sold in the black uh, lighting notes if I remember correctly. So I pulled my grade to an A minus in the next two exams. And then one day we're in Cafe Strata, which by the way, I was there twice today. <laughs> coffee, I loved it. And it was it's just memories that remind me who I am and where I came from. And she's going around and asking people, where are you from, where are you from? And then gets to me. And I am so proud of myself. And I said, I'm from Mexico. And I have the long hair, the earrings, the goatee. And then she looks at me and she goes, you can't be from Mexico. You're too smart to be from Mexico. I think she was trying to give me a compliment, obviously. But that's something that stayed with me for seven years. Until 1999, when I'm about to graduate from Harvard Medical School and I have to put together my commencement speech. You know, I was elected to give the commencement speech. 
Imagine, and I'm an arrogant person. I got to tell you because I, I mean, for what I do, but that affected me profoundly. For seven years, in every situation where people would know that I had an accent, people think that if you have an accent, you think with an accent. But I'm here to tell you with a certain level of authority that when I look at the brain, I don't see the difference whether you have an accent or not. The brains look the same. But when I was in that situation, people would try to ask me and I shy away. And it was not until 1999. So we have to be careful with what we say sometimes. So how did you get the confidence to move forward? And, and was it partly those kinds of jibes that led you to say, I got to even be better. I got to move forward even harder. Well, I do. And, and I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, my wife, for instance, right now, when NPR, we had a recent interview, and Naomi knows all this, and I have threats in my life. I mean, Joe Hopkins, some of you guys I know commented, you, you saw it in 2008, now with the book out, you know, if you look at the LA Times, there are people who say, you know, bad things. And I, and I, my wife obviously takes it more personally. I do read them, you know, and that's what gives me the fuel. Every single day when people say, you can't do it, they tell me, you can't find a cure for brain cancer. You can't be a brain surgeon. That's what I was told when I was in medical school. You can't go to medical school. That's what I was told when I was in, uh, in community college. Every time people tell me no, I want it even more. That's a drive. You know, that's the fire in your belly. Finding the passion inside you. I don't know how it is, and I don't know how some people do it, to be honest with you. But I have to keep myself focused mm -hmm. all the time. And when you look at the book, I talk about all the experiences of becoming that rookie. I'm not there yet, as I said before. But all those little things. And presently, a lot of this bad negative media publicity, seeing our country going through a difficult time, it just motivates me to want to do even more. And that's why I decided to do the race. And I'm not going to lie to you. I don't have time for a race, but I realize there's never going to be time. Mm -hmm. I have to prioritize. So what would you say to students who, who feel sometimes doubt and worry and concern and, and depressed about the kinds of experiences they have? Did you not have those kinds of feelings or did you just sort Absolutely. of say, okay, I've got to overcome that? No, I had, I had those kinds of feelings and I had them. Every single day when I walk into the operating room or when I go into the laboratory, I fear. I really do. And if I didn't, number one, I wouldn't be human. And number two, I would hurt patients. I am afraid. But it's not fear. And I talk about that in the book. It's not fear that matters. It's how you take that energy and what you make out of it. How you respond to that fear. Some people have fear and they go like this. When I have fear, I become... You think I wasn't afraid when I came in? I saw this incredible distinguished audience. You know, and I come out, that little kitten becomes a lion, and that's exactly how I deal with fear. I become more focused, my brain just absorbs every single thing that is going on, and I am absolutely 100% committed. Every single thing that I do, I do with the same passion. So, almost daily you have to deal with people who are very ill, and sometimes you have to deal with the death of a patient. How do you do that? You know, that is the most difficult part of what I do, obviously. It's, um, you know, when you do about 300 cases, it is, I mean, as you can imagine, a lot of them are really high-profile cases that come into Hopkins. And remember, I only finished my residence six years ago. And this year, you know, I was, you know, all my paperwork went on to the dean for promotion to full professor, which is not a small potatoes at a place like Hopkins, especially for a surgeon. You know, and people may say, well, he's Mexican. That's what they did. I can assure you, oh, they gave him an NIH grant because he's Mexican and he has an accent. 
I can assure you that's not the case because I've been in those committees and that, you know, not the situation. But I was promoted, you know, within six years. And I have this incredible, incredible desire to make a difference every single day. And I wake up thinking about it. How can I make it better today? How can I be a better person today, a better physician, a better husband? Which is, by the way, the part where I'm working the most right now as a father. <laughs> you know, because I realized that I sacrificed so much since I was a resident with my children. Now my oldest one is 12. My middle one is 10 and the little one is 6. This summer, I did my first mission in Mexico where I paid for my whole team. I took it to Mexico and we went not to do brain surgery, but to share and to learn from others. Alrighty? We don't go from the United States saying, oh my goodness, we know how to do everything to other countries. That's the wrong attitude. I go in saying, I am here to learn from you and I may have something to teach you along the way. So that way you can perform this type of surgery. And I ended up doing a few tumors through the eye and stuff like that. And I took my daughter. It's like I took my daughter and she was at my side the whole time because I want her to see what a public hospital that serves 7.5 million people that are uninsured and poor, what it looks like when you see patients on the floor after surgery, brain surgery, tons of patients in a 400-year-old hospital. You can imagine, with no water, nothing, no resources. And I want her to see that. And that's part of me trying to teach my children to be outstanding citizens of this world. So tell us a little more about what it means to treat cancer patients, especially of the sort that you treat who the mortality rate is very high. Is that, is that right? That's right. That's right. And so how do you approach that? How do you think about it? How do you think about treatments? What are you trying to do, palliatives, so that they don't feel so bad or that they have some energy left? Or exactly what's the, what are the goals here? Well, this is the way I said it. So once again, my brain works very simply. I'm not a complicated man. And I really do mean that. I'm a simple man. And the fact that I am still trying to accomplish the American dream is a testament of just hard work. That's it. And I never thought of myself as being the brightest guy in this room. But I do think of myself that I can work harder than anybody else. Grant Gagher, who's one of my professors here, actually, and I know that he's been telling people that because that was, that's something that I took a lot of pride. So I break my treatment for my patients very simply. When they first come in, big tumors is decompression taking the tumors out so the brain relaxes because these tumors grow so fast and so large and they put so much pressure that if you don't take them out, those patients can die in two to three months. So the first stage is getting the tumor out, getting the diagnosis and relaxing the brain. That allows you to gain another few months. The next stage is the chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Mm -hmm. But before that, it's giving the patient the diagnosis. And we know in many cancers that the Attitude that the surgeon has towards the patient dictates how much this patient survives. And I saw that already. When I was a medical, a medical student, I talked about a story of my own classmate who went to see two doctors who had a completely different approach on the diagnosis and prognosis. And I saw it firsthand and I said, I never want to be the doctor who's pessimistic. I want to be realistic, but also optimistic. And that's been a study. I'm not saying this for myself with this data, that if you are optimistic with your patients, they survive, they double the survival. So I do that. And then they go through the chemo and radiation, and then the recurrence. And that's when we go back and re-engage, and going back and doing surgery in a 
bed that has got radiation, chemotherapy, you name it. Our challenge then also the second time around is to continue to collect that tissue so we can make them part of history. My patients are making history. Every single one of my patients gets a consent that is NIH funded and their tissue goes into the laboratory. So I'm in the, the business of giving hope. And at the same time, I'm giving myself the energy to keep moving forward. And what do you do with those tissues? What do they tell you about the brain cancer? So what we do with them is, once again, I decided to simplify my laboratory and I said, I want to become an expert on migration. How bad cells in the brain migrate? Because what happens is when we go in and take these tumors out, by the time we take them out, the time we take them out, they already, cells have moved away, far away. Alrighty? So they migrate. So we can take these tumors out with surgery, but we can't take the little cells that have gone far away because they are invading normal tissue. And we know from the early 1900s that you can take half of the tumor, the brain out, alright, and Walter Dandy did that after Harvey Cushing at, at Hopkins and wrote a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1928 and he knew that no matter how aggressive the surgery was, those patients' cancer was going to recur. So we can't fix them with that. So we're in the process of understanding these cells migrate. And we are the first laboratory in the world that has been able to collect this tissue from the operating room. We bring it to the lab and we can keep it alive for up to four weeks in our laboratory. And then we get their own cells and we put them in there. And then with a special, very fancy microscope, we can actually see these cells migrated. And we're in the process of unraveling what are the mechanisms that make them migrate. Yeah. So if you could find out what makes them migrate, maybe you could stop them from migrating, and that might help a great deal, to say the least. For cancer, and imagine for many other neurodegenerative diseases where the opposite is true, mm -hmm. where there is no migration. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, traumatic spinal cord injury, stroke, mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis, and you can name them all. So why did you major in psychology? <laughs> did, you, did you have the brain on your brain for a long time? Or, or I needed to be challenged, okay. alrighty? So remember when I first came here, I didn't have my first dream in English until I was a second year medical student. So I was here at Berkeley and I had to take, I wanted to be challenged in, in a way that no one else would be able to do. So what I was doing, is I wanted to do a major where there would be a lot of writing because that was really my weakest point. So the science came much easier and I was, without knowing, and I was taking all the, you know, the biology, the chemistry, the calculus classes to go to medical school and I was doing that to try to keep my GPA a little bit better. Taking <laughs> <laughs> the easy courses, the calculus, the chemistry, yeah, okay, I got it. You know, but the challenges were with the writing ones. You know, how little did I know? I mean, it's, it's a skill, obviously, that I use now. And you talk, you comment on my, on my CV. Obviously, everybody in my department comments on that because I really do have uh, and more stuff. I mean, most people don't know. Naomi does. You know, I have another book, a big Bible in neurosurgery, a two-volume, 300-chapter book that is coming out in February. And then after the two more tumor, uh, books on brain tumors and two other books that I have edited on stem cells and on brain tumors. But those are not the books that you guys are going to buy. I mean, that's just mainly the uh, brain surgeons are going to get those. Got it. So then you did psychology and then medical school. I guess, I guess we're trying to understand a little bit about how this progression. How did, you, how did you do this? Service to humankind. 
I went back to my roots and I realized that when I look back at the history in my life, and I'm sure everybody has a wonderful history, and the greatest challenge is how do you tell that story? And I look back at my life, my grandmother was someone who provided service to humankind. And I realized that that is something that I wanted to do. I didn't know that I was going to be working with my hands. That came out subsequently. But at the time, I had faith that if I follow my heart, everything was going to work out. And that's how I ended up going to medical school. So how do you do it all? You've got several kids, uh, a family, a, a dog and a cat. We dog learned. and a cat, yes. Um, and the dog and a cat can probably be a, a bit of trouble. <laughs> And how do you do all this stuff? Is it just get up every morning and you just keep going and going yes. and going? But, and, and don't you find people though who say, well, I need more of your time in this direction or that direction or something like yes. that? Yes, yes, all the time. And that's exactly how I, that's what you got to do. Most people, you know, uh, don't realize that it's very simple. I just get up every morning and do it all over and go to bed at late night and I get up the next day and so on and so forth. And I do that seven days a week. 365 days a year. Now, two years ago, 2009, another crucial point came in my life, and I allude that in the book, and Naomi wanted me to do more than that, actually, at the time that she was editing the book, but the truth is that I got to the point that my wife said, if you don't stop going to the hospital on the weekends, because I was doing this, I was going the whole weekend, just like if it was a weekday, you're going to lose your family. Your children don't know what you do. They see more of you on television and the media than they see of you in person. And uh, you, you know, you're at, at, at a risk of losing your family. Basically, she was you know, thinking that uh, she was going to move out with the kids. And that was a very crucial point in my life. And I had to rearrange my priorities. So that's how, you know, that's what I was saying, that I am getting better. Uh, that I have succeeded academically as a friend, as a father, I am getting better at that. Also, people think that I am a good father and stuff. I still feel that I have a lot of improvement to do. You, you do realize you're a success. Um, some people may think so. I feel in my heart, and that's one something. That's another thing that I do. I try to keep myself humble by telling myself I have so much to do in so little time, and I have not accomplished anything. Honestly, that's how I feel in my heart, and that keeps me going every day. Uh, so say a little more about how it feels to have your background and to watch the American media today, to watch the Tea Party, to watch some of the political stuff going on out there uh, that talks about Mexicans in America. Yeah. Well, it breaks my heart, as you can imagine, obviously. I, uh, people think that people like me came to this country first, uh, humble people, obviously, uh, undocumented, who came from humble backgrounds. They think that we come here to take someone else's job. The truth is, I came, and I can speak personally about my experience, and I talk about this in the book, I came because I was hungry. There was absolutely no food on the table, and I didn't feel that I had a choice. And at the time, it was interesting, because this country welcomed me. And now, that, and they said, when I wanted to be a, 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 a farm laborer, no problem, welcome him. He wants to be a welder, welcome him. Now that he's a famous brain surgeon, ah, he took someone else's spot. No, I would have been a brain surgeon except for Dr. Q. It's well <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm a little annoyed about that. But, so uh, it, is, it is, you know, so it breaks my heart, obviously, as you can imagine. Um, now the truth is, and there are, and one of my students sent me a link to the webpage of a, uh, of a mathematician who estimated 
that the chances of someone like me becoming a brain surgeon is one in 40 million. They do this theorem and so on and so forth. I don't even know if it's real, but nonetheless, they put that on the web. And I said, you know, people don't get the message that I have. I'm not arguing for everybody to be a brain surgeon. I'm not arguing for everybody to be a lawyer. We need good people in every single discipline. We're going through a critical period in our, in our country. And if we don't think and change the direction, as I said before, 30, 50 years from now, we are going to be outsourcing for other countries. Say just a little bit more about when you were a child, about what the world looked like, and do you recognize the person you were as a child anymore? Is it hard to get back there and to remember what that was I'm about? I'm exactly the same guy. Now, it hasn't changed. I just have more degrees, more awards, and now people recognize me in the street, but I have not changed. I'm the same guy that was here in Berkeley. In my heart, I still have the long hair, the earrings, the goatee, <laughs> and stuff like that, and I really do mean I have not. Yeah. I am the same crazy guy. You know, people said... You know, some people say, when you go to Harvard, they're going to change you. Well, they changed me for a little bit. I did cut my hair, and for a while, I was wearing bow ties, just, you know, just to make sure that everything was smooth. But I'm still the same crazy guy. Thank goodness, <laughs> thank goodness you're away from the bow ties. Yes, that's very Harvard. But I am Harvard. still the same kid with the same dreams of exploring the world, the same amount of, uh, amount of energy. I was like, I've become a little bit better in organizing my time and recognizing priorities, obviously. So you were good at math as a kid because you said that you took care, or at least the clip I guess said, that you took care of the finances for the, the yes. gas station, was it? You know, it's amazing. So when I was five, my father, a, a person came in and they actually uh, wanted to uh, exchange Mexican money for dollars. And you get one dollar for 12 pesos and 50 cents. And I was five years old and my grandfather was there. And my father was not educated. He didn't even finish first grade, but he had high expectations. So he said, how many pesos, uh, how many dollars can I give him for X amount of pesos? So I needed to make a division with a decimal point. I didn't know, but I knew how to make divisions without the decimal point. So I made it with 12 over whatever the amount of money, and he wasn't happy. He was really disappointed with me. And my grandfather looked at him, and I, am, I look at my little girl now. She's six. She's actually older than I was. And my grandfather told my dad, man, you really have high expectations for this boy. And my father said, yes. So the expectations were set, you know, very early on. I don't think I was brighter than anybody else, to be honest with you. But I work harder than anybody else, to be honest with you. And that's the same philosophy that I have today. We're in Berkeley, and there are people who are concerned about cell phones and brain cancer. So I feel like we should ask you, Perfect. since you're an expert here. Yes, and I have, done a few shows. I have done a few shows. Actually, I was just interviewed for Men Health Magazine, something that is going to come out over the next few weeks. Uh, not about my running, obviously, you know, <laughs> but about cell phones. So they, um, they, uh, there's no data. The World Health Organization has categorized it as a level two potential carcinogen, same as some other foods and some other stuff, actually, that really doesn't make sense, but that raises a lot of eyebrows. Is the, 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 the reality is that we don't know. So people ask, what should I do? And I said, well, don't talk on the phone for too long. I have a phone, and I used it only for short phone calls. And if I'm in my car, I have a speaker system and so on. If I'm in my office, instead of using the cell phone, I use a landline. I mean, just be wise about it because we don't know if 25, 30, 50 years from now, something will come out. There is some in vitro data that seems to indicate that some of the waves that cell phones use 
the radio waves, they may actually cause some mutations on these cell lines, but this is all in vitro. And there were some studies and coming out of Europe saying that they'll probably give rise to a different type of tumor called a schwannoma or a meningioma. So those are extra-axial tumors. But I always, I don't, there's nothing that indicates that that's true right now, but just be wise. So just on, on the level of anecdote, is, is, have you had any patients who have come in and who have been worried that that was the source of their tumor? Yes. So yes, and I'd say, that? you know, relax. There's nothing that you have done wrong that will, that as far as we know, that is the uh, etiology or the cause of this cancer. You know, sometimes they're trying to understand why. They go through the stages of, uh, one of them is fear, you know, and they're upset and they're trying to understand. And I said, just, my role is just to calm them and say, there's nothing that we know. Let's deal with what we have right now. Let's take one step at a time. So my final question, what do you have to say to the students in the audience who are trying to find their way in the world and who are where you were 20, 25 years ago. Very simple. Stay thirsty. And that's not the commercial for the Dos Equis beer, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that's completely different. Stay thirsty. You know, right? And my kids, they tease me because they think that I got that from the commercial. I heard it before, but I like the commercial. But stay thirsty. Always stay hungry. And always keep faith and hope that things are going to work out but not without hard work. Thank you. Thank this you. This was inspiring. <laughs> and thank you for your attendance. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.